This week's episode of Future Hindsight is brought to you by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Hopeful12 and use code Hopeful12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. This episode is also brought to you this week by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, Future Hindsight listeners. Support our show by sharing this episode with your friends who you think would enjoy it. We have an easy referral link that makes it simple to share episodes through email, social media, your group thread, or wherever you share podcasts. And to say thanks, we'll express gratitude to everyone who signs up to share right here on the podcast. This week, we'd like to thank Gordon and Marjorie. Thank you. We have some other fun perks we'd like to send your way too when you refer us to 10 friends, including a Future Hindsight button and a Moleskin notebook. Help support the show and get your special link to share at refer.fm slash future hindsight or by following the link in the show notes. I'll give you my favorite example of bottom-up peace building. It's the island of Ijwi in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Ijwi is absolutely fascinating because everybody who lives on this island actually works to promote peace, including ordinary people, local activists, teachers, farmers, women's groups, etc. And so the way they build peace is by uh, fostering what they call a culture of peace. So this idea that we are all peaceful people, that we reject violence. The island has been peaceful for the past 20 years, although it has all of the preconditions that have led to violence in other parts of Congo. Ichwi shows that local community resources can sometimes build peace better than the usual elite agreements and outside interventions. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest is Severine Otisser, the author of The Frontlines of Peace, an insider's guide to changing the world. She offers an alternative and more successful strategy to build lasting peace, which is in contrast to the well-intentioned but flawed peace industry that she calls Peace Inc. We discuss the crucial importance of bottom-up peace building with all local stakeholders in addressing the root causes of conflict. So what does bottom-up peace building look like? So bottom-up peace building, it's peace building led by local people. It's peace building that happens at the level of the village, the individual peace building that happens in a community. It's completely opposed to the standard model of peace building, which is top-down, which focuses on governments, on legislatures, on elites, on all kinds of people based in capital cities and headquarters. I'll give you my favorite example of bottom-up peace building. It's the island of Ijwi in the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
the Democratic Republic of Congo is the stage of one of the deadliest conflicts since World War II. Several million people have died. Hundreds continue to die every day. Itui is a little island that is located right in the middle of some of the most violent provinces in the Congo, the province of South Kivu. And Itui is absolutely fascinating because everybody who lives on this island actually works to promote peace, including ordinary people, local activists, teachers, farmers, women's groups, etc. And so the way they build peace is by fostering what they call a culture of peace. So this idea that we are all peaceful people, that we reject violence. They also organize in many local associations and community networks to prevent conflicts from escalating into violence. And they build on very strong beliefs that help prevent violence. So for instance, they're going to use blood packs. Blood packs are traditional promises between two parties who agree never to hurt each other. And what I love about Edgeway is that the island has been peaceful for the past 20 years, although it has all of the preconditions that have led to violence in other parts of Congo. And although the neighboring provinces have experienced really, really massive violence and horrific human rights violations for the past 25 years, each we shows that local community resources can sometimes build peace better than the usual elite agreements and outside interventions. So when you think about the island of Idri, and you just said that they are a peace-loving people, they self-identify as embracing peace and rejecting violence. What does that mean in practice? How do they resolve conflict? So the way they work is that when there is a conflict, uh, they don't go to the police or to the army, but instead uh, they will go to the local mediators, to the local wise person, to someone that they trust. Sometimes they go to the local priest, sometimes they go to a nurse, or they will go to the local teacher, and they will ask that person to mediate conflict. When I talk about a culture of peace, it's not only making sure that when there is a conflict, you actually go to people who have the skills to resolve the conflict, but it's also teaching your children that you are a peace-loving people, that violence is not the answer, that violence is shunned. And it's making sure that everybody grows up in this understanding that peace is what matters above all else. Yeah, what struck me about this whole story about Idri is the treatment of the pygmies in Idri. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that friction, the tension between the dominant group and the pygmies is still mitigated by the idea that peace matters above all, even though they are incredibly unkind and cruel, in fact, to the pygmies? Yes. So in each way, you have two different ethnic groups. You have the Bantu Havu people who make up 
about 90% of the population. And then you have the pygmies. They, they self-identify as pygmies. And the pygmy population is about 5% of the population. And historically, pygmies have always been discriminated. They've been treated like not only secondary citizens, but sometimes really treated like animals. So a lot of discrimination that results in very concrete differences in terms of the access to power. Pygmies have no access to local power, to being the leader of a village. Very little access to prestigious positions like being a teacher, being a nurse, and also very little access to land, which is super important in Italy because land is the primary means of survival. One of the things that was surprising to me when I started working in Italy was why pygmies hadn't rebelled. I've worked in other parts of Congo where you have pygmy populations who are a really small minority, for instance, in, in Nyunzu in North Katanga. And they are discriminated against with the same kind of consequences as in Ichwi. But in Nyunzu, they decided to fight and they decided to use violence. And that led to a lot of raping, a lot of killings, a lot of villages that were burned to the ground, hundreds of thousands of people who were uh, displaced, who had to flee their homes. And so when I was in Ichwi, I tried to ask pygmies, why they didn't rebel. And regularly, they looked at me as if I was asking a stupid question, which I probably was. And eventually, one of them really told me things very bluntly. He said, we understand that we could be fighting, but we don't want to do that because we are a peaceful people. And peace is what really, really matters to us. And we don't want to break the peace. And then I asked him, but what would you tell people like me who come from the outside and who see all of these human rights violations and the situation you live in? Do you want us just to stay away and to do nothing? And he said, no, you should come, but you should brainstorm with us. You should ask us what to do. And together, we should decide how you're going to help. And to me, that's absolutely key. It's this idea that as outsiders, we can have a positive impact, but only if we follow the lead of local people, if we ask them how we can help them and what they want. So in the process of doing this, brainstorming, listening to them and working together with them to bring to fruition their own ideas and be the people who take action, you know, and execute on their plans. What have you learned in that process about the essential components that contribute to successful bottom up peace building? There are really multiple paths to peace. And what I found is that usually when we see successful peace building, the residents have achieved peace thanks to grassroots efforts in which everyone was involved. Uh, so again, it's really important to make sure that you include the poorest and the least powerful members of the community and that you also include perpetrators of violence when you try to build peace. The second important point is that Everybody usually builds peace by building on their own specific 
specific, unique local history, politics, and culture. So I was telling you about Ichwi and how they build on their culture of peace, which is something that has developed over 200 years, how they use blood packs, which is also something that is rooted in history. And the third important point is outside support. So when I've seen foreign supports actually work in conflict zones, it's a different kind of support from the one that we usually see. It's a support by people that I think are role models, individuals who respect local residents, who listen to them and who really build on their skills and their networks and their expertise. The ideal intervener, since you just mentioned that, how does this person differ from the stereotypical Peace Inc. operator? They don't think that as outsiders, they know better, that they have the right theories and skills and expertise, or that they bring the ideal solutions to people's problems. But instead, they respect local residents, they listen to them, and they're open-minded. They understand that other people may have a different understanding of peace, democracy, development, and different priorities. The second point is that they know usually the local context well. They have extensive local networks and they speak at least some of the local languages. They're in it for the long run. So they stay on site for years, sometimes decades. Another really important point is that they don't put themselves at the forefront of peace efforts. So for instance, they don't put their logos everywhere, but instead they remain low profile and they turn the spotlight on the achievements of their local partners, local authorities, ordinary people. They're flexible. They keep adapting their strategies based on the results and feedback that they get and the way the situation evolves. And lastly, they understand that sometimes there are hard choices to be made because unfortunately, not all good things come together. So sometimes we may have to choose between worthy goals, for instance, between peace and justice or peace and democracy. The best model peace builders understand that they shouldn't be the ones who make these choices, but the people who have to live with the consequences of a decision should be the ones who make it. Yes, this is basically the opposite of how Peace Inc. works. Can you explain how Peace Inc. actually works in general and how it has become essentially a giant industry with one model? The way things work is that governments, diplomats, peacekeepers usually try to resolve conflict by interacting with other governments, with other diplomats, with other outsiders, with elites, with presidents, with rebel leaders, with people based in capital cities and headquarters. And they usually ignore the grassroots bottom-up efforts by ordinary people and by local activists that are so important in constructing and maintaining peace all over the world. 
And another key assumption that they have is that all good things come together. So for instance, that elections will naturally lead to peace. We know that elections that are organized shortly after a war will usually fuel violence rather than promoting peace and democracy. Basically, they try to promote everything as a package deal. So they will promote peace and justice and human rights and democracy and gender equality and everything together without acknowledging that there are often tensions between these different goals. And the last assumption that to me is so incredibly detrimental is the belief that outsiders have the required skills and expertise and networks. When you talk to people at the United Nations headquarters or in many foreign affairs ministries or even in the leadership of many non-governmental organizations, they'll tell you that what makes a good peace builder is education in specialized topics like gender or human rights or election organizations. And by contrast, they'll tell you that the knowledge of country specialists doesn't really matter because they really need generalists. They need people who can work in different conflict zones. And as for the knowledge of local people or of people who know everything about a single village, it's not really important. When I was 22, I was fresh out of graduate school, out of SIPA at Columbia University. And I got my very first job as assistant country director for Médecins du Monde, Doctors of the World in Kosovo. So at the time, I didn't speak Albanian or Serbo-Croatian. I had virtually no knowledge of Kosovo history, politics, and culture, but I got the job because I spoke decent English, I had two fancy master's degrees, and I had some field experience in a variety of post-conflict zones and developing countries. In hindsight, I feel absolutely terrible when I think about my Kosovo assistant at the time. His name was Nerim. Nerim had 20 years experience analyzing political, social, and economic issues. He had a tremendous knowledge of the Balkans' history, politics, and culture. He had lived in Kosovo all his life. He was also much older and much wiser than I was, but I was the foreigner, so I was in charge. I had no idea what to do with him. And so eventually I found a way to keep him busy and I asked him to compile and translate clippings from the local press. And I can still see him every morning religiously posting his work on our bulletin board and none of my colleagues ever read it. And even I often didn't have the time to read it. <laughs> so it was such a waste of time and energy and talent. And after that, as I started working academically on peace building, I realized that that was a typical situation for foreign peace builders. Because again, most foreign peace builders assume that local people do not have what it takes to build peace, that they are incompetent, corrupt, and violent, otherwise they wouldn't be at war. And by contrast, Foreign peace builders believe that they have the required skills and expertise to build peace. 
We'll continue our conversation with Severine in a moment. I want to take a minute to tell you about HelloFresh, a fun new way to cook without the usual hassle. Now you can cook restaurant-caliber meals without finding the right recipe or even visiting the grocery store. Best of all, they're giving away 12 free meals, including free shipping, when you go to HelloFresh.com Hopeful12 and use code HOPEFUL12. HelloFresh offers pre-portioned, high-quality ingredients to you every week, so you know it's fresh from their farms. Even cooler, HelloFresh is the first 100% carbon-neutral meal kit, and its meals have a 25% smaller carbon footprint than grocery store food. They've also donated more than 4 million meals this year alone. We commend them for their civic engagement. I just cooked the Korean beef bibimbap. I love to cook, but I've never tried a Korean recipe before because I was under the impression that it would be cumbersome. Not so. This meal was easy and delicious. My whole family devoured it in one sitting. Go to HelloFresh.com Hopeful12 and use code Hopeful12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. I also want to thank our other sponsor this week, The Jordan Harbinger Show. In my totally unbiased opinion, Jordan's show is one of the best interview podcasts out there. In fact, Apple awarded them one of the best podcasts of 2018. The guests and topics on The Jordan Harbinger Show are a little more wide-ranging than on Future Hindsight, but no matter who the guest is, you'll find something interesting. Whether you're learning what it's like to hunt terrorists undercover, unlocking the secrets of our own brains, or getting investment principles from the best in the business, Jordan's podcast doesn't disappoint. I really enjoy the show and think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I have a question about this top-down approach. Do you call it trickle-down peace and trickle-down peace, just like <laughs> trickle-down economics does not work? Can you explain the concept of the way that trickle-down peace should work in theory and why it misses the root causes of conflict on the ground? So trickle-down peace is basically this idea that you can resolve conflict by working with governments, that you're going to negotiate a peace agreement between rebel leaders and presidents. And once all of the big bosses, the big men, once they've signed a peace agreement and, and shake hands, then they're going to tell their followers to stop using violence. And so peace is going to trickle down from the higher level to all of the villages and to all of the ordinary people on the ground because soldiers and uh, lower level officials will obey the commands of the big boss. So that's the theory. In practice, it doesn't work at all. One of the reasons is that often the rebel leaders do not have a good enough command and control over the soldiers. So very often they sign a peace agreement and then a group of soldiers or the entire group just breaks away and continues fighting. 
But the other key reason why it doesn't work is because this trickle-down peace-building approach assumes that people are fighting for national issues, that, for instance, they're fighting over the control of the government or they're fighting over a border between two countries. Local conflicts have a lot of importance as well. Local agendas fuel violence in many war and post-war situations. And when I say local, I really mean at the level of the individual, the family, the clan, the community, the district, the ethnic group. And their conflict over who can control land is incredibly important because being a landowner means that you have security for you and for your family. I'll tell you a story. I realized this during my first trip to Congo. It was in 2003, I met this person who was in her 20s. Her name was Isabel. Local militias had attacked Isabel's village. They had killed many men. They had raped many women. They had looted absolutely everything. And then they wanted to take Isabel, but her husband stepped in and he said, no, please don't take Isabel, take me instead. And Isabel never saw him again. And the reason why militias had attacked Isabel's village was not because of anything related to national or international tensions, like the war between Congo and Rwanda that was going on at the time, or the war between rebel groups and the government over who would control the entire country and who would get to be president and prime minister. No, no, no. The rebels wanted to take the land that the villagers needed to cultivate food and to survive. And Isabel's stories have stayed in my mind all these years because to me it embodies the awful consequences of local conflicts that foreign peace builders so often ignore. Yeah, that story about Isabel was really heartbreaking. And also, of course, that she, like many others in her situation, decide to stay because there's no place else for them to go. And it is the land that is theirs and that they cultivate to keep themselves alive. Exactly. To me, that was the thing that really broke my heart when I was talking with her. She kept telling me that so the militias have attacked my village and and then we fled to the bush and then we came back and, and we cultivated our land and then the militias attacked again and they raped me again and I fled to the bush and then I came back and I cultivated my land and then they attacked again and they raped me again. And at a point I told her, Isabel, but why, why do you keep going back? Why don't you stay here? When I met her, we were at a nutritional center in the big town called Nyunzu that was just uh, next to where she lived and where I was working for Doctors Without Borders. And she said, no, this is home. Like my village is my home and that's why I have my land and I don't want to leave my land. My land is what I need to survive and I want to stay near my land. So let's go back to peace building. What is the ideal peace building model? Because you also speak about the fact that actually there is a role of Peace Inc. going forward, that at some point there is a place for them to shake hands with the bottom up in order to generalize peace, to make it hopefully truly take root. So tell us in your own words, what is the ideal peace building model? 
So the ideal peace building model is using both the top-down approach, working with governments, with elites, with rebel leaders, and the bottom-up approach, working at the local level, at the village level, with ordinary citizens, with grassroots activists. It's relying both on outsiders and on insiders. And the ideal peace-building model has to be, again, context-specific. Why don't we talk about specific examples? Because that, that's very abstract. Yes. The Life and Peace Institute, LPI, is a Swedish peace-building organization. And in Congo, they have developed an approach that's really the model peace-building approach. So the LPI Congo team bases its action on in-depth local expertise and LPI doesn't implement programs directly, but instead uh, it works with and through a few hand-picked local organizations to support people on the ground. So these local organizations empower local communities to develop their own analysis of their community's conflict, to agree on the most feasible answers, and then to implement the solutions. It is the community members themselves, including ordinary people, who conceive, design, and implement peace-building programs with the hub of LPI and its local partners. Let me give you a very concrete example to show how this actually works. So for years, there was a very deadly conflict in the Ruzizi Plain in Eastern Congo. And in 2007, three Congolese organizations decided to address these tensions with the help of the Life and Peace Institute. And for three years, they all focused on understanding what the problem was. They progressively realized that the conflict was not so much a proxy war between two countries, between Congo and Rwanda, but rather it was a conflict between herders and farmers. Because cattle often destroyed crops, the farmers retaliated by killing the herders. The herders' families reached out to local militias who went on to attack the farmers' communities, and so on and so forth. And then all of the people involved, they all designed solutions that they thought would work to address the problems that they viewed at the root of the violence. So, for instance, they decided to establish route for moving cattle with very minimal disruptions to farmer. They also erected public signposts to publicly mark the road that the herders should take with their cattle. And they established mediation committees in which they put representatives of both herders and farmers so that these committees would smooth out any tensions that may arise. So for several years, the seasonal migration of cattle took place with very little violence. Dozens of militiamen handed in their weapons and ethnic groups that were fighting slowly started working and living together. Yeah, this is uh, such a great story. And it's completely unsexy <laughs> when you think about it. Peace building and you work for the UN and you do this high level summit with the president and et cetera, et cetera. And then in the end, it's like you want to mark where the cows walk. 
That's not what people think about when they think about peace building. No, and you're not the first one to tell me that my alternative approach to peace is unsexy. There was a review <laughs> of my book in the New York Times, and the phrase was decidedly unglamorous approach to peace building. I was like, what do you mean, unglamorous, unsexy? It may be unglamorous, it may be unsexy, but it works. And yes. that's really important because violence is not sexy, but peace is sexy. I was talking with a peace builder a couple of years ago and he was telling me we have to make peace sexy so that's that's going to be the next book excellent <laughs> no i totally agree that peace is sexy and violence is not i agree with you there 100 <laughs> percent. but so i think this is a good time to ask about where democracy fits in because people think that democracy is sexy that elections are interesting and this is the be all and end all and so with peace building specifically the top-down approach really as you say tries to deliver this in one package, but it actually doesn't work very well. Tell us where the disconnect is. Usually, we really think of peace and democracy as reinforcing each other. And we usually try to promote peace and democracy as a package deal, because again, there is this idea that elections will naturally lead to peace. But when you look at the track record on the ground, elections have actually fueled violence when they were organized shortly after a war and they have actually reignited the conflict. We've seen that in numerous cases all over the world, in Afghanistan, in Congo, in Colombia, in Somalia, in Ukraine. And so rather than thinking that we can promote democracy and peace together, we have to realize that sometimes there is a trade-off and that sometimes we have to make a choice. And so we have to acknowledge that we can promote either peace or democracy. It's not you and I, Mila. It's not people based in New York who should decide for people who are in Congo, in Colombia, in Afghanistan. It's people who will live with the consequences of the decision, who have to be able to decide, okay, do I want to prioritize peace? Do I want to prioritize democracy? So as an everyday citizen, as an insider in my own community, or maybe as an outsider in another place like a conflict zone, what are two things I could be doing to promote successful peace building? Oh, there are so many things that you could do, Mila. The first one is that you can support grassroots organizations at home and abroad, and you can support them with time, with money, with efforts, with whatever you have to spare. Local grassroots organizations really help make a difference and really help decrease violence, both in conflict zones and in the United States, in our own community. So I know that a lot of your listeners are interested in how activism can succeed and decrease violence in the United States. So they might know of Cure Violence, a US-based organization they use the same kind of insider-led, bottom-up approach that has worked to resolve conflict in Ijwi, in Somaliland. They have managed to help decrease violence in the United States in more than 20 cities, and they have managed to decrease shootings and killings by up to 73%. So that would be the first thing, supporting grassroots organizations. And the other one is developing informal relationships with your opponents. 
Because you remember when we were talking about the relationships between pygmies and Bantu-Havu peoples, I show that it is by listening, talking, and bonding over shared interests that the residents of Ijwe have managed to decrease violence and, and keep the peace in their communities. And so that's a strategy that has also worked very well in the United States. We can use sport groups, religious groups, art associations, trade unions, because these are all good places where we can start building common ground with our opponents, whether they are political, cultural or religious opponents. Good advice. Here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? The fact that there are so many role models, that there are so many exceptions to the standard approach, so many international peace builders who use the model approach to peace building where they're humble, they're respectful, they make sure that they let ordinary people be in the driver's seat. And the fact that you have so many communities who are in the most terrible circumstances, in the middle of horrific conflicts, but who manage to build and maintain peace all around them. And they can do that on very small communities and also on big territories. In one of my chapters, I, I tell the story of Somaliland, where people have managed to build peace and to maintain peace for more than 20 years on a territory that's bigger than Syria and North Korea. And for a population of 4 million people, which is larger than the population of Uruguay or Bosnia. So what makes me really hopeful is that there is another way to build peace and it works much better than the standard approach. And we can follow these models and, and there is hope. Here, here. I think there definitely is hope. Thank you very much for all the work that you do and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much, Mila, for having me and thank you for the discussion. It's not surprising to hear that the path to successful peacebuilding is paved with the goodwill and participation of all the direct stakeholders in the conflict, from the most powerless, the victims on the ground, to the most powerful, the perpetrators. It's also not surprising that the solutions are pragmatic, unglamorous, and require patience, tenacity, humility, and an open mind. We've heard it here on the podcast before. The people who are affected by the rules of engagement, by the terms of the peace, must be in the driver's seat of decision-making. I hope that we can indeed make model peace building and peace itself sexy so that we can embrace this peace building approach and pursue it with passion. Next week, our guest is Mark Rank, co-author of Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. We bust the myths about why poverty exists in the United States and why it's a systems problem as opposed to an individual problem. What I argue in terms of poverty, 
is that we're playing this large-scale version of musical chairs and that there really are only good opportunities for maybe eight of ten people playing this game. If we step back and look at the structure of the game itself, then we look at things like there aren't enough decent paying jobs for everybody in society. There isn't a safety net that is robust and supports people. These then become the ultimate factors for why poverty exists. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.